What's worse about wrongful convictions? Innocent people spending years, decades, the rest of their lives in jail for crimes they didn't commit? Or knowing that the person who did commit the crime got to walk free? Both are just about unbearable, if you ask me. Unfortunately, we're only human. Humans are in charge of the judicial system, and humans make mistakes. But it goes deeper than that, because sometimes they aren't just mistakes. Sometimes they're people making decisions with ulterior motives, or there's negligence. Sometimes decisions are made that aren't fair, or truthful, or just. And that's a pretty good summation of what happened during the prosecution of Joyce Watkins and Charlie Dunn. And now we're left with a 74-year-old woman freed after serving a 27-year sentence for a crime she didn't commit, a man who died in custody for a crime he didn't commit, and an unsolved murder. This is the story of the murder of Brandy Danielle Jesse. And listener discretion advised, this episode will have to go into some detail about the assault, rape, and murder of a child. Okay, let me take you back to 1987. I wasn't born yet, but I can tell you what was going on. Dirty Dancing hit theaters. Michael Jackson released his Bad album. The early versions of cell phones started coming out, and the first season of Full House was on TV. Al Unser Sr. won the Indy 500 for the fourth time at the geriatric racing age of 48. Michael Jordan was averaging 37 points a game for the Bulls, and Mike Tyson was 32-0. And Ronald Reagan delivered the Berlin Wall speech in June, the very same month that Joyce Watkins and her boyfriend, Charlie Dunn, headed to Kentucky to pick up Watkins' great-niece, four-year-old Brandy Jesse. Just before midnight on June 26th, Watkins and Dunn arrived in Fort Campbell, Kentucky to pick up Brandy and take her back to Nashville where they lived. So Brandy had been living with another one of her great aunts, a woman named Rose Williams, and she'd been staying with Rose Williams for two months. Now, right off the bat, Watkins and Dunn noticed that Brandy had a black eye and she was complaining of being thirsty. And then when they got all the way home, Watkins found blood in the girl's underwear. So upon this discovery, combined with Brandy just acting kind of strange, Joyce Watkins called Brandy's grandmother in Georgia to tell her that she believed Brandy needed to go to the doctor or the hospital. But Brandy's grandmother told them not to do anything, and that she and Brandy's mom would come up the next morning to to get her and bring her back to Georgia, I guess. But by the following morning, Joyce Watkins couldn't wait any longer. After almost nine hours of watching Brandy act strange and this blood, she knew it was time to do something. So she called back and she was like, look, I'm taking this kid to the hospital. When they arrived at Nashville Memorial Hospital around 9.30 a.m. on June 27th, Brandy was still bleeding and she lost consciousness. Now, Watkins' sister would later corroborate that Brandy had still been conscious earlier that morning because she came over to visit briefly, and she did, she did say that Brandy was still awake at that time. 
But doctors found severe vaginal injuries and head trauma. So she was rushed to Vanderbilt University Medical Center where she was placed on life support. Brandy Jesse was pronounced dead a day later, four years old. The cause of death was the trauma to the head. And what happened after that was just a big mess. Joyce Watkins was interviewed by police multiple times without being informed of her rights or having an attorney present. But Watkins and Dunn both cooperated willingly. They allowed police into their home to get the child's clothes and bedding. And according to the Conviction Review Unit, after an investigation in Fort Campbell that, quote, left much to be desired, the police had already decided who the culprits were. They didn't need any more evidence. In August of 1988, Joyce Watkins and Charlie Dunn were convicted of first-degree murder and aggravated rape. But people who had been around Brandy while she was living with her great-aunt, Rose Williams, said, wait a minute, there's more to the story here. And boy, were they right. Now let me rewind and give you a little backstory here and explain. So here's the deal. I'm pretty sure that Brandy's permanent home was with her grandmother and her mother somewhere in Georgia. But for the two months leading up to the time when Watkins and Dunn picked her up, she had been living in Fort Campbell, Kentucky with her great aunt, Rose Williams. Brandy's mother had brought her up there for some sort of celebration, and the decision was made spontaneously for Brandy to stay longer while her mom went home. Now, this is interesting. There were conflicting responses when they were asked who was supposed to bring Brandy back to Georgia. Brandy's mother said that Miss Williams had agreed to drive her home to Georgia, but Miss Williams said she didn't know anything about that plan and that she had tried calling and getting a hold of Brandy's mom and couldn't. Now, like I said, it was originally supposed to be a two-week visit, and the goal, I guess, was for her to be able to spend some time with Miss Williams' own kids. You know, out-of-state family, they probably didn't know each other that well, so they thought it might be nice to let them get to know each other. But Williams said that Brandy had been acting strange during the visit. And here's where it starts to get really interesting. Neighbors of Miss Williams recall seeing the child nearly fall asleep while standing up, and they said that she just seemed like a generally unhappy kid. She never played, and there were bruises on her body. One time, Miss Williams found Brandy drinking out of the toilet bowl. Another time, she said Brandy started, quote, spontaneously vomiting at the dinner table. Williams also said that Brandy had daily episodes of urinary incontinence and complained of her private parts hurting so badly that she didn't want to sit down in the bathtub. In two instances, she even lost consciousness. She said one of the times it was because Brandy had peanut butter lodged in her throat. After that particular event, a neighbor suggested taking Brandy to the hospital to be checked out for possible brain damage from being unconscious for so long, but Miss Williams ignored the neighbor. Now, the other time she lost consciousness was when Brandy apparently fell down the stairs, 
And that time, Ms. Williams said that she was taking Brandy to the hospital, but decided to turn around when Brandy woke up and started talking. So in all this time, with all this weird stuff going on, Rose Williams never once took Brandy to a doctor or a hospital. That's strange, right? So sometime during this two-month stint in Kentucky, the Kentucky Department of Social Services received a tip, probably from a neighbor, I would think, that Brandy was being abused. So they did send a social worker to investigate, but apparently she was fine with whatever she saw because nothing came of it. Williams told the social worker that any injury Brandy may have been reported to have was from a recent, quote, playground mishap. We learned later that Williams lied to the social worker about Brandy being in her care or custody at that time. So she, I don't know if she hid Brandy or what, but I'm really, I'm pretty unclear about how how all of this played out. All I know is that that visit didn't do a damn thing for Brandy's safety or well-being. They didn't go out to confirm that she was back home or living elsewhere. That much we know. There wasn't, it doesn't seem like there was any sort of follow-up. Williams also didn't tell the social worker that Brandy had been spending a good amount of time at a neighbor's house with a couple and their 15 and 12-year-old sons. But it was after that visit from social services that Rose Williams started to really bug Joyce Watkins about coming to get Brandy. She started calling her often. Although at first, Miss Williams testified that she hadn't been calling Watkins frequently, but it was during cross-examination, when presented with phone records, that she admitted she had been doing just that. Very sketchy. Now, when Watkins and Dunn showed up in Fort Campbell, Watkins said that Rose Williams was in a major rush to get Watkins and her boyfriend out of the house and on their way with Brandy, that she didn't invite them inside like she normally would have, which was strange. There's also one other thing to mention here, but I I can't find where it belongs in the timeline of events, but one source I read said that while Brandy was at a Bible camp, someone noticed that she had welts on her back and she had a swollen hand. So I'm not sure if this Bible camp was while she was in Fort Campbell or when it was back in Georgia and she was living with her mother. I'm not sure. The only conclusion I can come to is that this was just a a battered, abused child. Okay, so now you have about as much background information as I do. So let's talk some more about the investigation, trial, sentencing, appeals, all that good stuff. Like I said before, both Watkins and Dunn were always cooperative with the investigation. Dunn submitted DNA samples that were compared with samples from Brandy's bed and her hair and clothing. No match. Now, the Conviction Review Unit and Tennessee Innocence Project did a ton of work on this case, and so a lot of this information is from their research and from the report they came out with. And one of their first complaints was that the CID, the Criminal Investigation Division at Fort Campbell, 
did a shoddy job investigating any other suspects, including Rose Williams herself, uh, the neighbors, and a 19-year-old cousin of Brandy's who was a Marine and apparently hanging around the house a lot. There were just a lot of other people around. I mean, Williams lived on a military base. It was kind of a tight-knit community. There were a lot of people that could have been hanging around near Brandy. But it gets worse. Enter Dr. and Dr. Harlan. Dr. Greta Harlan from the medical examiner's office performed the autopsy on Brandy Jesse with her then-husband, the state's chief medical examiner, Dr. Charles Harlan. Dr. Greta Harlan found imprints of nine blows from human knuckles on Brandy's head, and the force of these blows caused the veins and arteries on both sides of her brain to tear. Okay, There were also multiple tears to her hymen, and also, warning here, you might want to skip ahead 15 if you don't like these details. So, multiple tears to the hymen, and also lacerations around her vagina extending back to the area around her anus. Okay, so that's that's pretty gnarly stuff. And initially, she determined that these injuries had occurred within 24 to 48 hours of the child's death. According to the Crime Review Unit, quote, if Harlan could indeed determine the timing of a head injury solely by visual observation, she would have possessed a skill not recognized in modern medical science. Okay, so listen to this. She's made this decision, okay? 24 to 48 hours these injuries occurred. But then, 20 minutes before the trial starts, she changes her mind. Now she says the injuries occurred within 12 to 14 hours of Brandy's death. And then she actually testifies in front of the jury that the injuries must have occurred in the nine hours that she was in Watkins and Dunn's care. For the record, according to the CRU, modern medical advances have proven that it could have been even longer than the 48 hours she had initially said, and and we'll talk a, a bit more about that later. But for right now, would you all like to know more about the Harlins? I'm gonna tell you. Dr. Charles Harlan was forced to resign as Nashville's medical examiner in 1994 after three women who worked under him sued him for sexual harassment. Ten years later, his medical license was revoked after the Tennessee board found him guilty of 20 counts of misconduct, including falsifying autopsy reports. Y'all, I don't know, but I think you have to be pretty bad at being a doctor to get your license revoked. I mean, that that means you've been a really bad boy. Now, Dr. Greta Harlan was also the subject of an investigation by the state health department. And when that was over, after being fined and reprimanded, she retired her medical license too. And here's a fun side note. A tenant renting a house from the Harlans found a jar of body parts in their laundry room and other anatomical samples that should have been discarded. So, do we trust the Harlins? My answer is no. Beyond that, we have the prosecutor, ADA Richard Fisher, who the CRU says, quote, consistently misrepresented evidence to the jury and to the post-conviction court. The report goes on to say, quote, 
When stripped of demonstrably unreliable testimony, facts misrepresented to the jury in post-conviction court, and faulty medical conclusions, even the minute circumstantial case against Ms. Watkins and Mr. Dunn is devoid. It's also important for you to know that later, when they brought in new doctors, I'm assuming to look at photos, they determined the injury to Brandy's vaginal tissue could not have been a fresh wound. Tennessee's head medical examiner, Dr. Adele Lewis, even said that the cellular response probably happened, quote, several days or even more than a week following an injury, well before Brandy was in the care of either Joyce Watkins or Charlie Dunn. Okay, I'm going to throw some more facts at you. Joyce Watkins called Brandy's grandmother an hour and a half after she picked her up. Okay, and roughly an hour of that was drive time. So this would mean that they drove home and then in 30 minutes Brandy was raped and then they called the grandmother to tell Brandy she needed to go to the hospital. That would be a very unusual chain of events. By the way, when they tested Brandy with a rape kit, they found no semen or spermazoa. Other red flags came up during the original trial that somehow didn't deter the jury. Rose Williams, to me, was just so sketchy. It sounds like they really grilled her about all those situations I mentioned before and that she never took Brandy to seek medical care, and she really had no excuse. Other than she did say that one of the times she didn't have enough gas to get to the hospital without stopping to fill up, so I guess she just didn't bother. They also acknowledged um, during the trial that Williams lied about Brandy to the social worker. She told the investigator that Brandy had already gone back to Georgia, was no longer in her care, which we know was a lie. Um, She also told the court that it was the urinary incontinence Brandy suffered that caused her private parts to become chafed, implying that Brandy hadn't been sexually abused on her watch. So, Brandy's mom was also at this trial, and Brandy's mom said that she hadn't exhibited any of the strange behavior or health issues that they were describing before this. So according to her mom, this was all new. So whatever was causing Brandy harm hadn't started until she left Georgia. By the way, Brandy's mother maintained that she believed Joyce Watkins was innocent and would never have done harm to her daughter. Now remember, it wasn't until after that visit from the social worker that Williams started begging Joyce Watkins to come and get her. And in the end, it was Watkins who became the only one to actually do something about Brandy's condition. Her mom wouldn't come and get her, Rose wouldn't take her to the hospital, and When Joyce Watkins told the mom and grandmother about her health issues, they said, well, just wait for a while and we'll we'll be up there to get her. And then when Joyce had called the next morning, they hadn't even left to come to Nashville. So Joyce is the only one acting on this, and she ends up getting punished for it. On August 5th, 1988, Joyce Watkins and Charlie Dunn were convicted of first-degree murder and aggravated rape. 
They appealed separately in 1993 based on ineffective counsel, arguing that their counsel failed to call rebuttal witness to refute the surprise medical testimony of the ME. You know, like how Harlan changed her story at the last minute. They didn't seem to question that. Uh, So the appeal was denied. Fast forward, fast way forward. In 2015, the two were granted parole, but Charlie Dunn died in custody while awaiting his parole decision. And then even though Joyce got to get out on parole, she had to register as a sex offender. So then Joyce Watkins went to the Tennessee Innocence Project asking to tell her story. And the report asking that the pair's convictions be vacated was filed on November 10th, 2021. Included in the report was this. Quote, It is absurd to ignore the documented and ongoing abuse and neglect of Brandy in the two months prior to her presence in Nashville, and instead to place the blame on the two people who had Brandy in their care for less than nine hours. Two people who within 1.5 hours notified Brandy's grandmother of a medical problem and the need for Brandy to receive medical care. And this 44-page report, it worked. Here's a quote from District Attorney Glenn Funk. Quote, Joyce Watkins and Charlie Dunn are innocent. We cannot give Miss Watkins or Mr. Dunn their lost years, but we can restore their dignity. We can restore their names. Their innocence demands it. This finally happened on, I believe, January 12th of this year. So very recently. Watkins is the first black woman ever to be exonerated in the state of Tennessee, and only the third woman in state history. It's unclear at this point whether Miss Watkins or the family of Charlie Dunn will be compensated for being wrongfully convicted and spending 27 years behind bars. Charlie Dunn's daughter said, quote, He lost his mother, his two brothers, his sister, and his son. So many people he lost, and he was innocent. He died in a place he was never supposed to be. Dunn was exonerated posthumously, and it was also revealed at this most recent court date in January that Watkins was actually offered a deal right before their trial in 1988. They wanted her to say that Dunn committed the crime, and she refused. And Miss Joyce Watkins is now starting over in a world she was barred from for nearly 30 years at age 74. And justice will probably never be served for four-year-old Brandy Jesse. And I'm left with so many questions. There were so many opportunities for people to speak up and get this kid to a doctor's office. Why did a two-week stay turn into a two-month stay? Why did Rose want Joyce Watkins to take Brandy and not the child's own mother? Why was it so hard to get the child's mother in the loop in all this? Why couldn't Rose get a hold of her? What about Rose Williams' oldest son? In the CRU report, I learned a little more about that. Like I said, he was 19 at the time of Brandy's death and in the Marines. 
Williams told investigators her son had left at the end of May to go to his reserve unit in Georgia, and that's where he remained. But I, it doesn't look like we have anything really to confirm his whereabouts, and some people felt like Williams may have been covering for her son. There doesn't appear to have been much investigation at all into whether he really was where they said he was on the days leading up to Brandy's death. Watkins and Dunn showed up at midnight on June 26th at Rose Williams' house, according to the 44-page report, which I read in full. I think that in itself is a little strange, too. It makes me think they must have... There must have been some sense of urgency for them to leave their house at 10.30 at night, pick this four-year-old up at midnight, and take her home in the same night. And that, the timing of it, makes me wonder what all they knew, what Rose was telling them. There's more to this story, and it feels so close. What is, what continues to be troubling about this case is that it was treated as so open and shut when it happened. There aren't a lot of articles about the original investigation. There aren't a lot of details about a timeline of events or Brandy's immediate family or any of that. Her mom's name isn't even mentioned in any of these articles. It's included in the CRU report, but it's redacted. Although later in the report, it's not redacted, so... Out of respect, I'm not telling you what it is, um, but if you want to read the report, it's there, and you can find out for yourself. Another thing I found in the CRU report was that Miss Watkins had visited with Miss Williams and Brandy two to three weeks prior to Brandy's death, and although she didn't see or report seeing any injuries or bruises, she did call Brandy's mom and tell her that something seemed off and that she should come get her. In response to this, Brandy's mom told investigators she didn't believe it because Mrs. Watkins tended to exaggerate. That, to me, is kind of unreal. Your relative calls you out of the blue and says, hey, I think something's up with your kid here who's staying with your distant relative. You might want to come get her. I get my ass in the car and go get her. Also, the call that Miss Watkins made from her home phone when she arrived back in Nashville with Brandy, okay, that same night, uh, that was a 16-minute phone call, during which she informed the mother that Brandy was bleeding. And that the, the mother said, do nothing, don't take her anywhere, we'll come get her later. But what else did they talk about in those 16 minutes? I would love to get a recording of that phone call. Part of the reason they initially shifted the suspicion to Watkins and Dunn was because they said some of the details in their statements were inconsistent with one another. Unfortunately, we'll never know if that's true, because they weren't all recorded. One of the officers testified that when they filed their reports, they hadn't taken any notes and were doing so from memory. In fact, this officer went so far as to say that although she reviewed some recorded statements, her written reports didn't reflect what was in those recordings, but that the recordings, quote, refreshed her memory as to other statements made by Ms. Watkins. 
It's a shame we don't have better notes or recordings on what they said during those interviews because who knows, maybe something in there would give us clues as to what was really going on in that family. And now Brandy's not listed on any of the unsolved or cold case websites because she got a late start, right? Because the wrong people were in jail for her murder for 30 years. (laughs) So, okay, rant over. Um, There I go again, just leaving you with a plethora of frustrating conclusions or lack thereof. Um, So yeah, that's the truly tragic story of the unsolved murder of Brandy Jesse.